Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to start off today with one of everybody's favorite topics. It's kind of been in hibernation lately. It's been fallow. The LRT. Remember the LRT? For, for a while there, it's all anybody talked about. It's kind of gone into, gone into hiding a little bit. But uh, this week, yesterday, in fact, <clears throat> it returned to the city council floor with talk about, well, where things are going with the LRT, but also some very, very big questions about this ongoing, never-ending story. John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins me now. John, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Bill. I thank you. I keep calling you Bill, and I do apologize. But That's okay. I've got to be ten years of Bill, and now it's Scott. You know, John, if that was the worst thing I'd ever been called, I might be offended. But uh, believe me, <laughs> not the case. Bill is fine. I'll take that as a as a badge of honor. So, I mean, among other things, and, and I want to get to this part first of this LRT story. It was up for discussion yesterday, as I say, among uh, council. We are. I don't know when, I don't know how far away we are from construction starting. I'm not sure anybody knows at this point. I don't know if we really know where we are in the process. But the one thing that is just amazing to me, John, is we still don't know who's going to operate this and what it's going to cost to operate this. That, that seems to me to be stunning that those seem like the most basic things in the world before you launch into something like this. Well, they are, except that at this point, we don't really know what the LRT is going to look like um, because the initial deal, or not the initial deal, but the, the, the last deal we saw was going to see $3.4 billion laid out by Ontario and the, and the uh, federal government to build 14 kilometers of LRT. But that was at a time when interest rates were 2%, 2.5%. Now they're more like 6 or 7%. So we don't really know if, uh, assuming that the $3.4 billion is, is all there is on the table, and that is all there is right at the moment, uh, how much LRT we're going to get for, mm. for that, given the changed circumstances. So until you know what the physical layout of the LRT is, it's pretty hard to come up with a uh, an estimate of what the operating and maintenance costs are going to be. I guess. I, well, I mean, if you had to bet, and I don't know if you're a gambling man or not, but if you had to bet, what do you think the chances are that the LRT, as it was last laid out, could still be done for that same $3.4 billion? I, I don't think there's much chance of it, frankly, Scott. I, I you know, just look at everything else. Uh, one of the reasons we're not getting apartment buildings built as quickly as we'd like is because uh, the builders are are kind of watching and waiting to see what's happening with interest rates. So any kind of construction is going to be subject to the vagaries of interest rates. That's just the way the the business works. So I think it's highly unlikely. Uh, we're going to uh, get uh, 14 kilometers of LRT for $3.4 billion. Um, and I, I noticed, uh, I guess it was at the last time they had one of these meetings where uh, staff told council the plan is to start from McMaster, not from Eastgate. And if you think about that, that makes a lot of sense because if they do run out of money, uh, hopefully they can at least get to downtown Hamilton mm. 
before they have to decide whether they can get more money or whether that's as far as the project goes. Although, uh, John, let me just, I mean, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but honestly, if they start building this thing and this ends up as a, a LRT that runs from James Street to McMaster, after all this time, what what an absolute, I don't, what's the word, failure, disappointment? I don't know what the word would be. That would be ridiculous. Well, it might get to Wellington. <laughs> okay. I mean, that would be just lunacy after 10 or 12 or 50, whatever years it is, an endless discussion and so many hundreds of hours of council meetings and blah, 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 blah. If it's that, oh, I mean, my goodness, I don't even know what to say about that. Well, uh, I, it's the reality that we live in, Scott. We're, you know, we're we're into a, a a labor shortage. We're into a materials cost spiral, and we're into uh, heavy interest rates that I don't think anybody thought we were going to see. I think you know the world kind of got used to money at two and a half percent, two percent, three percent, and suddenly it's more than double that. So, you know, I I think. I watched the meeting uh, yesterday and there's, if you really analyze the meeting, you've got staff talking to council. And as far as I'm concerned, unless you got Phil Verster, the president of Metrolinks in the room, I don't really feel like there's anything meaningful mm -hmm. happening. So what they were discussing is uh, what kind of a uh, operating and maintenance model are, are we going to suggest to Metrolinks that they adopt? And they, they sort of had four models ranging from uh, Hamilton would do all the operating and maintenance to um, Metrolinks would essentially farm it all out to a third party. And uh, so that's what the, you know, two and a half hours of talking hmm. about that. The reality is that Metrolinks will will tell us what kind of an operating and maintenance deal we will get. And they have these subcommittee meetings. Uh, they have about there's going to be another one in December where staff are going to uh, advise council on which of the four models that they would like to take to Metrolinks. Um, but, you know, we are. The, the key elements of getting this thing built is, first of all, a request for uh, qualifications, which is, you know, shortlisting, first of all, finding out if there are consortiums out there that are able to take on the project, given uh, other projects that are competing. Uh, and then this, and, and it's going to take time to sort of figure out which of those are we gotta, able we gotta, to do it. John, you mentioned about operating and we sort of started on this one, but I am... I am still amazed that we are hearing, okay, it could be an operating cost if the city does this of anywhere between six and $30 million a year. We don't know. We have no idea. And quite frankly, I don't have any, well, or very little faith that 30 could be the cap. I mean, everything, every time this happens, it gets in higher. I, I say it just to me is, a, is unbelievable that we are still chasing a number to be able to put to this. It, just, it seems like something that should have been done well before now. Well, I, I'm now sort of coming to the conclusion, Scott, that um, council will at some point vote on the operating and maintenance model without knowing the cost. I, I, I think that's likely the case because, frankly, when we look at these other uh, LRT projects with cost overruns, even, even if we did agree to a number, uh, there's no guarantee. I mean, the cost is whatever it is. So if we're uh, if we're up for 
the operating and and it sounds like actually the maintenance we keep talking about operating and maintenance but Metrolink so that came out at the meeting this week uh, they've made it pretty clear that they're going to handle maintenance they're going to farm it out probably to somebody who builds LRT equipment so I don't think maintenance is really in the card so it's really going to be what is the operating cost and uh, we we can estimate that but a lot of it has to do with how many people are riding uh, the uh, LRT uh, uh, passenger, uh, you know, the more passengers you have, the more uh, trains you're going to have to put on, the more operators you'll need. Uh, all of which I think is going to be pretty much unknown until they get the thing going. And uh, so I, I think council will probably end up, uh, assuming the project goes ahead, uh, agreeing to a, an operating agreement without knowing the number. Oh, uh, wow. I mean, they, they, I would suggest that maybe um, they might want to pray that the number comes in at something semi-reasonable because doing that, that's a high-risk maneuver to agree to something without knowing what you're going to pay, regardless of what it is. Well, I mean, everything to do with LRT, whether it's in Ottawa, whether it's the Eglinton Crosstown, the only one that's really been, you know, relatively uh, uh, drama-free has been the Kitchener uh, LRT. And uh, one of the suggestions made at the meeting was to get somebody in from Kitchener to talk about how they they handled their project. So we, we may get some insight there, but, um, you know, it's uh, LRT is uh, very complicated and I think it's very specific to whatever city it's in. Mm. In Kitchener's case, they were able to use a certain amount of existing railway right of way which uh, I think uh, simplified some of their work. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens, but uh, we're, you know, we're having these uh, LRT subcommittee meetings, but frankly, uh, I don't think really the sticks have been moved much this year, to be honest, between uh, uh, requests for call qualifications and, and requests for proposals uh, and, a, and a final design on the site um, I, I would guess that we're we're still a year and a half to two years, even if everything was put on rush, uh, before you'd see any work done. That's uh, that's encouraging. <laughs> it's it's been we'll we'll all be dead. It'll be on our headstone someday. We covered the LRT forever. Um, just very quickly, wanted to change tack really quickly. Something that's coming up tomorrow at council. I, I've written about this. We've talked about this. We've had him on the show. Ted McMeekin, councillor for Ward Fifteen is bringing up a motion to cap municipal tax increases at 4%. What do you think the chances are this passes? Zero. Well, it may pass, but the chances of it actually happening are just about zero because uh, when Mike Zagarek presented the budget um, this week, he said a maintenance budget, and I think you and I talked about this, the maintenance budget, in other words, to maintain the level of services we currently have with no add-ons, was going to be more than 4%. Uh, it was going to be just under 5%. So just to keep things the way they are now uh, would would mean, uh, uh, you know, being higher than 4%. Now, and so then the only other option, and I, I don't see this council having much appetite, is actually making cuts. And I, I frankly don't know where they would begin on that one. I mean, it would be nice to think that they could find some efficiency somewhere without cutting services, but certainly they've been conditioned to 
accept the fact that every time anything new needs to be done, it's strictly an add-on. There's never a subtraction. So it's going to be a tough, you know, interesting that Ted came up with that number, but I just don't know uh, how possible it is without actually reducing somewhere else in the system. Yeah. And, and you know what, John, I, I, I think though, that there would be a lot of people listening, a lot of people in this city who would be quite okay with the idea of saying, look, you can find half a percent overall of a budget. If 4.5 is a maintenance budget, surely the city can find half a percent and live within those means. I, 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 I don't think that that would be an unpopular move that McMeekin would bring forward. I think the whole structure of municipal government is not geared that way. Um, you know, the, the CAOs, uh, the city managers we get, they're very dependent on the support of their senior managers. And there's just no appetite uh, to do uh, the same with less or to do more with less. I think there's a culture at the municipal level that just uh, really uh, will twist itself inside out to avoid any kind of cuts. Yes, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't know that that's automatically the right position, though. I, I think that, as I say, I think a lot of people, whether whether City Hall would do it, I think an awful lot of people listening would say, look, I, I work in the private sector. We've all had to do more with less. We're asking you to find half a percent. I think you can do it. Well, yeah, you're, ta- the, the, you're talking about the people that are paying the bills. That's what uh, I'm talking the, about, yes. Yeah, they don't usually fit into this equation, unfortunately. It's, uh, you know, and, and unless there's a very forceful response from the public, and, and by the way, I think there has been a very forceful response to the 14.2 uh, announcement because you're seeing counselors popping up on social media trying to make excuses, saying, well, it's all downloading from the provincial government. The downloading from the provincial government, folks, is 3.66% of that 14.2. So, you know, the, a big chunk of it is stuff that this council added on after the last budget was set. Always appreciate having you on, John. Uh, that is John Best. We'll be doing this again soon. Uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canadians for generations have either been immigrants or have generally, I think, very broadly, very much supported the idea of immigration into this country, being a melt, not a melting pot, being a, the opposite of that, bringing your culture here and we honor that culture and we let you continue to be that. We, this has been a country that I would argue probably more than any other country on the planet. Maybe you can find another one that matches. I don't know though has been welcoming of immigrants, but it does seem whether it's because of enormous numbers in the last couple of years or stresses on housing or medical or whatever else that may be changing a little bit. There's a piece in the Globe and Mail, Canada's welcoming attitude toward immigrants is at risk of fraying. The author of that piece is Andrew Perez. He's a Toronto based freelance writer and media commentator and political activist joins me now. Andrew, how are you today? I'm great. Great to be on your show, uh, Scott. Really appreciate you doing this because this this is something, we've talked about this a few times and I don't disagree with your premise that it is at risk of fraying. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. And I'm wondering, do we, do we point at Canadians then? Is it Canadians losing patience? Is it politicians who are over overplaying their hand with immigration, if that's the right term? Where, where, where do you think this is starting from? 
Well, I think the origins of the issue have have likely been uh, percolating for a few years now. But as recent, and this is what I find fascinating, as recently as March of this year, so, you know, six months ago, um, Nick Nanos put out a poll in March 23, which found that, you know, only 34% of Canadians thought that immigration levels were too high. So the vast majority thought they were at about the right level. Um, but Nanos actually released an updated poll on that same question two days before my op-ed came out over the weekend. And the poll found that a staggering 53% of Canadians feel that immigration levels are too high. So just over half. And, you know, we're expected to bring in about 465,000 new people to this country in 2023. And that number is expected to rise to 500,000 by 2025. So those are unprecedented levels. We obviously are a country of immigrants. We have a low birth rate, like, like most Western countries. We have a labor shortage. We have an aging population. These are all reasons why we I believe, should have robust immigration levels. And as I mentioned in the piece, it's personal to me. My father is an immigrant to this country, like many Canadians. He arrived here, he arrived in Canada 50 years ago, two years after Pierre Trudeau introduced official multiculturalism. And so he really benefited from the social license and, and the strong support for immigration over the decades. And I am, as a citizen and the son of an immigrant, um, concerned that uh, from a public policy point of view and from a social license point of view, we are at risk of of, of uh, the support fraying. And we're seeing this uh, just very recently with these polling numbers. And so when you look at those polling numbers, something has to have changed in people's minds uh, unless it's a bizarre poll where we just got completely different audiences. But assuming it's the same pollster and probably the same question, is it, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is housing is such a huge problem right now that people are looking and saying, we just can't, it's not that I don't like immigrants. We just can't fit everybody that we need to because we don't have a place to put them. Is it housing? Is it something else? Yeah. What, what are you pointing at as what you think would be the driving reason why those numbers would have changed? Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head, on the head there, Scott. I, I don't, I, I, I know actually that it's not that you know for the most part i know that it's not that canadians don't like immigrants that's not part of who we are that's not part of our history and you know i reference you know the riots that were took place in france last spring and you know in many countries in europe there is that nativism that anti-immigrant sentiment and that's simply not part of our our history and our identity so what it is to your point it is it's public policy issues it's the housing affordability crisis it's our strained healthcare system and, you know, both of these public policy challenges have been exacerbated coming out, of, you know, emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm a millennial, you know, I, I, I'm well aware of the constraints and the affordability issues for my generation who aren't able to get into the housing market because of a lack of housing supply. And so I want to see our, 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 our decision makers and our political leaders across the political spectrum and every level of government really work together collaboratively collaboratively to ensure that we can maintain that social license. We mm. can maintain that buy-in, that strong support. Um, because I do think it's, again, not, not for nativist reasons, but because, you know, someone can't get a family doctor or they're, you know, they're in a six month or one year wait for a specialist service in a hospital or their son or daughter, you know, are, are, are staring down a reality where they're going to be renters for their entire lives, even though they have decent, well-paying jobs. So I think, 
you know, there are things that decision makers can do to address these issues. And we really need to look at these issues with a laser fo laser like focus and take a nonpartisan approach because these poll numbers now over 50% of Canadians feeling that we that we're bringing in far too many immigrants that's very concerning to me as a citizen and you know with election with an election on the horizon federally um i just as as a proud canadian and the son of an immigrant i would not want to see immigration become a political hot potato sure, in the election sure. and the risks involved with that. Okay. But what about the idea? And this has been proposed, not just here. I mean, it's been proposed lots of places that we need to catch up with things like housing. And so we need to slow down immigration a bit, not stop it. And again, not because we don't want immigrants, but just to give the country a chance to create, I mean, nobody wants to see immigrants living on Yonge Street or, or somewhere else. People who come here and then they have, we have no place for them. That's a, it's a pathetic situation to welcome someone into your country and then put them on the street. Is there an argument to be made that we should slow down for a time to allow us to build the infrastructure that would then allow us to do this better? So I think that that's an argument that some are advancing. And I think, you know, if it's advanced on the terms that you just described, I think that's a reasonable argument. Um, my, my personal view is that I would like to continue to see robust levels of immigration because, you know, as a, as a, as a political junkie and political analyst um, and, and someone who understands government, I know that, um, you know, Canada, you know, we now have 40 million people and we're looking to compete with countries like the United States, Britain, France. And, you know, that's a challenge when when we're a relatively small country. And so that's, you know, that's the reason why we're growing and we're bringing in, bringing in record number of Canadians. You know, we do have an aging population. Our labor shortage, particularly in, in certain sectors, is, 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 is a huge problem. It's why corporate Canada is, it has long been lobbying governments and every, you know, the federal government primarily for higher immigration levels to fit those, those labor to, you know, fill a gap when it comes to certain sectors. So I think, you know, the, the labor shortage, the aging population, those those are those are going to be those, those will continue and so immigration is the answer we can we can are you know there can be a reasonable debate around the margins but i certainly wouldn't want to see our, our immigration levels reduced significantly mm. but what i argue in the piece is it, it's not so much about in my view reducing it's about addressing these issues the housing crisis the healthcare crisis so that we can we can improve we can improve outcomes for everyday canadians and thereby have stronger buy-in for immigration because, you know, there was an Enveronics poll that came out in October 2022 that found that seven in 10 Canadians supported the current levels of immigration. So that was, you know, uh, less than two years ago. That was a year ago. Um, and so within a year, there has been a dramatic shift. Yeah. And I really, if you ask me what accounts for that shift, it's that people are really feeling the pain now with healthcare, with housing, and, and it's, it's impacting how they view immigration. Levels. Andrew, I have literally 30 seconds, so I wish I could give you more time, but you mentioned uh, the margins. One of the suggestions that has been made is let's not stop the immigration numbers, but we welcome too many foreign students right now who aren't going to stay here, who aren't going to give birth here, who aren't going to work here. And that is taking up too much housing that we need to cut back on that part. And even though the minister in charge of this has talked about it, is that an area where we should start restricting things to try and help the case? So I'm that that's not an area of my expertise. I do note the Nanos poll found that 
you know, uh, part of the poll was asking about foreign students. And I think over half of Canadians feel that we're bringing in too many foreign students. Again, I think foreign students are part of the immigration mix in this country. They're integral to our country's success. You know, they are attracted to our world-leading educational institutions. And some do stay in the country. Some may, some may uh, move, move to other countries, move back home, but they pay, they pay more tuition than Canadians do. That's true. They pay above market rate tuition. So they are contributing to the economy. I understand the argument around housing, but I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think international students are a real asset to, to our economy, but there are no easy answers mm. uh, to this question. I wish we had more time. Uh, the piece in the Globe and Mail, Canada's welcoming attitude toward immigrants is at risk of fraying. The author is Andrew Perez, who's been with us. Andrew, great job today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a piece uh, in The Spectator, a guest piece that was written the other day uh, by Ward 2 Councillor Cameron Crutch um, about people being really angry with councillors. This was specific to the tiny shelter debate. You may recall that there were there was a meeting that was scheduled to be held and some people got angry and they shut it down because... Uh, there were apparently some threats. Well, it's not a new idea that people have been angry with counselors, with politicians, but specifically with counselors. And if you go back last term of council, there were counselors who had their cars broken into and damaged. And you say, well, okay, lots of people have that. Well, it was right after a very contentious debate and right after something was posted on Facebook specifically targeting this counselor. The odds of it being a coincidence were seemingly long. There were counselors who had their houses egged. You'll recall that then Mayor Fred Eisenberger had a coffin put out in front of his house uh, as part of a protest. Um, Judy Partridge, Ward 15 counselor at the time, Judy Partridge, her house had uh, the only house in the area that had a bunch of planters destroyed. I mean, uh, Arlene Vanderbeek, former Ward 13 counselor, had her door kicked in one time. Again, only car and at the time of a contentious debate. Is this a real concern? Are these strange, unique examples that don't really mean anything? Or are we heading in a direction that is problematic and concerning? I want to bring in... Former, or not former, <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to vote him out of office yet. Uh, Councillor John Paul Danko joins us. I, sorry, well, the for, I don't know where former came from. I guess I was talking about all the former councillors and I voted you out already. John Paul Danko, thanks for doing this. Thank you. I've got at least three more years. In my <laughs> That's country. right. The, for, the former was an accident. One of those words that just <laughs> pops in. We won't do that to you yet. Uh, this is something that I do wonder about. And I, I do wonder if this is just an outlier that these things happen occasionally, or if someone like you and other counselors that you've talked to are concerned about this stuff? I think, yeah, we are certainly concerned about this. Um, And as you point out in your intro, it it is nothing new. These kinds of incidences happen from time to time where counselors or, or political elected officials are personally targeted. And it wasn't okay then, and it is not okay now. Uh, I I do have a bit of a perhaps different perspective on this, using really aggressive tactics in order to try to get your voice heard, because one of my first things when I got involved in, in, you know, being active in my community was actually personally hijacking a school board meeting, taking the mic from the presenter, prying his fingers off it one by one, 
in order to make a point on behalf of the community. And at the time, that was a conscious decision that we made in order, because we didn't think our voice was being heard, so we had to do something drastic. And I think there is a fine line there between that kind of civic engagement, civic even disobedience, to when it transitions over to being a personal attack against an individual. Well, let's go there for a second, because there are people currently and in the past, and I'm sure in the future, who are activists who have been involved in civil civil disobedience to some degree or another, who then decide to run for office. And I would have to believe, and you've just brought it up, so I'll go to your example. I would have to believe that if that happened today, while you were in a meeting as a counselor, you would frown upon that kind of behavior. Um, how, how do we, how do we, how do we get around that? That you know, maybe some people have done this in the past and it seemed okay, but now that we're in a position of power, it doesn't seem okay. Well, I think the point that you're making is, is people are are a little bit confused, right? Because we have seen the type of frustration that turns into agitation and anger, and in particular in the in the Hats case with the tiny shelters. I mean. This is people's neighborhoods, their community, their family, and also their largest investment, their homes. So it's not just, you know, run-of-the-mill public consultation about what play structure you want in your park. It's a really serious issue for people, and therefore, understandably, people are, you know, really invested and emotionally invested in the outcome. But I, I think we have to be really careful where we're depending on the issue is, is how we react. So some of those issues that, that you brought up earlier, I mean, look at the defund the police and other social justice uh, activists that have been involved in the city for years. I mean, they hijacked a, a budget meeting last year, much in the same way that I did with the school board. Um, and that was celebrated with some councils actually staying in chambers and, you know, uh, helping them basically. Um the attack on Mayor Eisenberger's home. Um, but again, I, I think, we, we to use the sports analogy, right, as, as elected officials, it, we have to keep it on the ice. It can never be personal, and it's never okay, no matter what the issue or who the person is or whatever the, you know, the reasons. It, it, it has to stay professional and attacking the issue and not the person. Okay, so you use the example of the defund the police situation. If a counselor had stayed, if a counselor had encouraged it or whatever else, uh, how then do you then turn around anybody who do this? And I'm talking not this, just this example, any example, and later say, okay, I was okay with that one, but not with this one. Because it would seem that once you've given the okay... You've told people, I'm okay with this kind of behavior. I don't know if that's the intended message, but I would think some people would interpret that message. Well, again, I think that's why, you know, people are confused, right? Because the people, voters are not dumb. The voters have long memories and, you know, they, they pay attention a lot closer than people give, uh, you know, sometimes give them credit for, you know, so they're seeing, you know, for example, counselors that boycotted the spectator, because they were, you know, uh, protesting something that, that the Spectator reported on, who are now writing op-ed pieces in the Spectator. So, you know, people put A and B together and say, well, you know, why was that okay then, but now it's not okay when, when it's a different issue. Um, but again, you know, 
these are actually very serious issues where we ha- do have a credible threat of personal violence. And, you know, I'm speaking as, as a middle-aged white guy, and the, the threats that I face, and I have fe- personally faced threats, you know, they're, they're much different than, you know, the mayor, Mayor Horvath faces as a very high-profile female elected representative, as Councillor Kretsch, you know, faces as a queer man. So, you know, it, it's again, it's it's never okay to personalize it. And those threats of violence, just like the bomb threats in the schools today, right? They're, you know, they're they're not really credible, uh, but we have to take them seriously because if the off chance that something happened, you know, we don't ever want to be responsible for that, and we don't ever want anything bad to happen to anybody. So, what do we do with this? Uh, I mean, there, there are a number of possibilities. One is any time there is any kind of situation or threat we call in the police and get them to investigate the the flip side is we say you know we until something bad happens we trust that it's just people who are frustrated and we let them blow off steam what what, what is the right answer I, I think we have to be prepared and we have to you know face these things head on because um, you know, in my experience as elected official, I've been in rooms before many times with people various up, upset about issues. And, uh, you know, it's never escalated to anything unpleasant, but, you know, understanding that it could happen and being prepared for that. So when we had the huge Greenbelt meeting with thousand people out in one room, very, uh, you know, upset about a specific issue, we had a huge security plan in place just in case nothing bad ever happened, didn't have to use it. But, you know, we're prepared for it. And I think something as elected officials, that's something that we do need to think about more uh, moving forward, even if it's just a local community meeting. Understanding that there are people with mental health issues, you just, you never know. I want to ask, and I don't know how exactly to ask this because it's going to sound, well, is there, when, for example, this meeting that was shut down that... uh, uh, the Ward 2 counselor talks about where there were threats and he r- writes about where there were threats and worries about violence. It, do we ever, not in that example necessarily, but do counselors ever antagonize people? And I don't mean that it's ever okay to then take that and become, to offer threats or try and be violent, but it, do counselors have to sometimes choose their words? Any counselor have to choose their words so they don't antagonize the people who are angry with them? It's an interesting question because I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to, you know, uh, censor what it is that I really want to say on an issue or, you know, how I want to talk about something. Because I I don't think that's good for our democracy to say, well, if if I say this, people are going to be angry. Ultimately, I'm responsible to the voters, you know, at the next election. Um, But at the same time, in those really emotionally charged issues that that people have a a very substantial investment in Um, how we talk about things is important the language that we use is important and not you know inflaming situations by you know saying ideological rhetoric that you know you have to know your audience basically and and understand where you are and what you're saying and and to to be fair in in this meeting i was not at the second meeting i was at the first meeting i don't believe there was too much ideological rhetoric but it is a very passionate uh topic as you say but and i'm not again i'm not even speaking i i I cited a whole bunch of examples at the at the beginning of this of 
counselors who had had things happen. I don't know that I could point to specific examples where someone had intentionally or otherwise riled up and antagonized voters. But I just wonder about that part. If, if to, to your point, do you need to be very, very, very careful about what you say because people could be antagonized or do we need to say, no, I need to be straightforward and I need to say what I mean. And if someone gets angry, so be it. Yes and no. So, you know, just using myself as, as an example, during COVID, I was very vocal about uh, vaccine mandates and masking and things like that. And I posted about that on Twitter regularly on social media. And during the campaign, I knocked on somebody's door who was very angry about what I had been saying and literally chased me down the street. So, you know, it, it does happen. And sometimes it's not intentional. And sometimes it is, you know, being a little bit uh, provocative about how you say things or what you post. So I have done that myself. Um, but again, it's, it's never, no matter what I post on social media or I say or what I do, I'm a, you know, responsible to the, to, to the voters first and foremost. And also, again, it can never translate to physical violence. That is the mm. line that we can't cross. No, I a hundred percent agree with that one. I, I, I wonder too, and, and, is there ever an issue, and I don't know what this issue might be, would you say there's ever an issue that would require it? To, we have in-camera meetings, you have in-camera meetings, but is there ever an issue, could you imagine an issue that we should have nobody in the council chambers? And I know there have been cases where people have been kicked out, but I'm saying in general, because you know that it's going to be heated, is there ever a time to say, empty the place before we even start? No. No, I, I think having public debate, public discussion, and having the public uh, there to witness that if, if they wish to be, that's a fundamental cornerstone of our democracy. I think if, if you can't say it in public, you probably shouldn't, shouldn't say it in the first place, you know, unless it is a genuine reason to go mm. in camera. So, you know, things may be uncomfortable to talk about in a public space, but it, it is, I think anyway, critical to the democratic process that we continue to have those public discussions. Let's go to the, uh, let's go to the meeting that uh, they got canceled that, that stemmed this whole thing or started this whole thing. Uh, again, I was not there, but from a number of people who were, there were two or three people in particular who were seemingly the focus, who were the loudest, the most angry, the most agitated. It, it, do we need to have police involved more to say, or even just security to say, we're not going to shut the whole meeting down, but we are going to get rid of people who misbehave? I think it depends on the situation and it depends on the issue. So police are always there to keep the peace, to maintain public order. You know, their their job isn't to, you know, be the bouncer to make sure that your meeting can proceed. They, they want to make sure that everybody is safe and at the end of the day makes it home to their to their families and, and that nothing happens. And, it's tricky because we're always second-guessing the actions of police and what they should do. I was at Mohawk College during the protests with uh, Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada. Um, people have been at protests many times with the police there, and they're always accusing them, oh, how come you didn't do this? How come you didn't do that? Um, I, I, I think we have to be really careful about putting police in that position as being, you know, uh, an enforcement arm of, you know, democratic elected officials. 
Having said that, again, I think it goes back to being prepared for these incidences, especially if we know it's an issue that is emotionally charged, that we do clearly have security present that are able to address these situations if they if they occur. And also, I mean, most people are decent people. And I think, you know, I wasn't at that meeting, but my understanding was that people self-police as well. You know, residents generally are not going to allow one or two people just to go off like that. They, we're, we're good Canadians, right? People get upset if somebody has that kind of um, <clears throat> um, attitude in public. It's uh, it is absolutely a tricky situation, and and you know, as I say, there have been plenty of examples of this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know exactly what the thing is, except for people to. Uh, be passionate, but to behave. I guess that's the uh, the hope that we would have, that people can be angry and people can be passionate, but they don't have to uh, offer threats or vandalize or whatever else. Uh, it's. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this one again. I'm sure it won't be the last time that we talk about this. Uh, John Paul Danko, not former, current counselor from Ward 8. Appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, keep it on the ice. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.